0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Meb. We have a special guest today, live from a hotel room in Buckhead, Atlanta, Jeremy Schwartz. Welcome to the show. Meb, thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to have you on. Jeremy, for those who aren't familiar, is Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, a $40 billion or so ETF shop with offices all around the world, and Jeremy spends a lot of his time on planes, trains, and automobiles, and so we're lucky to grab him today. Uh, he also does a radio show. The only single reason I'm a XM, is it XM Serious? Yeah, that's right. Okay, subscriber with with Professor uh, Siegel once a week on Warden, highly recommended. All right, Jeremy, we're not going to pull any punches today, so we are going to straight up cannonball into the pool, probably with some areas to a lot of investors that may not be as familiar. So if you're if you're driving or working out, turn up the volume a little bit because this this is going to get esoteric pretty quick. Let's start with currencies. This is an area that both you and I I think think a lot about so why don't you tell me a little bit about your perspective on currencies in general and uh, we'll kind of we'll move on from there how do you, how do y'all think about currencies when investing in a in a global world
1: well, I love you starting right with this question. This is one that, you know, I've done a lot of commentary on, and I think this is actually one where in the industry, the industry has done people a very big disservice, and I think propagating a lot of myths out there. And a lot of it comes from the active managers. And I've actually heard a few people on your show, two people I actually really respect a lot, who have made statements that I just think are quite misleading. Uh, and right. the statements are, one of them is, you know, currency hedging, is expensive. This is a broad conversation that a lot of people say, and the truth is it's only selectively expensive. For Brazil, it's a very expensive thing. Their interest rates are 14%. And that means, you know, that's essentially the cost to hedge. And But for something like the ECB where they have negative interest rates, so negative 40 basis points in Europe, and we have positive 40 basis points, you get basically paid 1% to hedge the euro. You get paid to hedge the yen because they're at negative 10 and we're at positive 40. And it's not just today. You've been paid over the last 30 years. 30 years on average, you've been paid almost 40 basis points a year to hedge foreign currency. So it's not really an expensive proposition. What the question people say and what people say, you know, why they've been unhedged for so long, you know, you hear a lot of catchphrases like Currency is a, a quote unquote diversifier, and I, I I really challenge that proposition. I say if you look at the data, if you look at MSCI EFA going back 40 years to the you know the, the longest time period they have, if you look at the stocks by themselves, the volatility of the stocks by themselves is 14.4 for U.S. investors. If you look at the stocks plus currency on top, the volatility becomes 17. So there's about 260 basis points higher volatility to buy EFA stocks with the currency. And so I call that uncompensated risk, that you're getting this higher risk profile for no expected return. Sometimes the currency will help, sometimes it won't help. It's basically like going to the roulette, roulette wheel, you bet on red or black. Sometimes, you know, it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. But it doesn't mean you should always go to the roulette wheel and bet on red or black. And so, you know, I say you should be hedged a lot more than you are and for broad international mandates, I'd say most people aren't hedged. Uh, you know, Wisdom Tree was the first firm to start doing currency hedging in ETFs. Now, for Europe and Japan, I'd say roughly 30% of the assets are hedged. I think a lot more should be hedged. And, but I think for international benchmarks like an EFA universe, nobody's even, even started that yet.
0: It's, it's really interesting, and you guys were some of the pioneers here. I mean, if currencies are particularly challenging, I think, for Americans. And, and you and I both travel a lot international. And, and part of it is, look, we're the reserve currency. We don't have to think as much in terms of currencies. But if you go travel to Argentina or Europe or Japan, people think and talk about currencies. Almost every investor I meet talks about currencies in the first 30, 15 minutes of the conversation, whereas most Americans don't think about it. There was, I was reading a book on currencies. I'm blanking on the name. And the intro says, Currencies aren't difficult, they're just confusing. And I think, there, like you mentioned, there's a lot of misunderstanding on currencies in general. We'd actually written a book, or started to write one on currencies, and kind of just threw up on our hands, because we said, people probably no one's going to read this at all. Yeah. So, you know, so it's an interesting, so there's... Thing you That's got actually idea. where
1: I got the idea. Sorry to jump in there, but it's actually when I went, I, I was traveling to Europe in 2007, 2008, and we would talk to pension funds, and they would say, you know, when I invest in the U.S., I would never take currency risk. Why would I ever bet on the dollar? And we were saying, wow, the U.S. is so backwards when it comes to this. We've always basically, maybe these foreign markets are smaller in our allocations. We maybe will be 70, 80% U.S. and only a small amount overseas. Now what's interesting is when you talk to people about their fixed income allocations, "Oh, of course, when I go to international fixed income, of course I'm going to hedge my currency. Um, the volatility would just swap my fixed income volatility. It's standard practice internationally on fixed income that will hedge our currency. But for equities where they're more volatile, people just say, "Oh, that's not that important." Well the last three or five years tells you it can be very, very important, um, depending on what happens. And if you're not guaranteed for the dollar to always go down, or stated that the euro will always go up. So if you don't think the euro will always go up, why should you be betting on the euro? And so that's, that's really my, my main proposition. And then, you know, the Europeans, they definitely do a lot of currency hedging. What's interesting, I was in Australia talking to Vanguard there, and half of Vanguard's assets in Australia are done on a hedge basis when they go overseas. And so, I mean, now that's a country that has very high interest rates, so they get paid even more to hedge when they go overseas. Um, but it's, it's sort of interesting that we haven't done that in the U.S.
0: You know, you see a lot of interesting investor behavior around the world when you start to travel that you may not think about necessarily in the U.S. For example, I was in down in Buenos Aires. I think it was Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires, and um, was at the marina. I think it was Buenos Aires. I'm blanking on this. Anyway, one of the nicest marinas I've ever seen with some of the nicest boats, the largest boats I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, holy cow, I live in L.A. This puts the L.A. marina just to shame. It's, I mean, and the guy I was with, he goes, well, Matt, think about it. If you live in a country with high inflation and it starts to talk about currency risk and everything else, yeah. where do you put your money? You put it into the hard goods because at least you'll have something, you know, when, when the currency depreciates or inflation takes away. I'm getting a little off topic. So, So there's a first step. And there's areas that I'm super opinionated on, and there's areas where I'm a little more agnostic. And so you and I have debate, talked about this many times over sushi or whatnot, where I'll say, look, currencies, with equities, I'm somewhat agnostic. However, I always say that you you need to pick one side or the other. You're either going to hedge or you don't, but don't go back and forth. And then I follow that up with a caveat, which is, and this was part of the book that we had written and the only fund we haven't filed from our original filing many years ago was a currency strategies fund, which is you can actually apply some very simple rules to currencies that actually can tilt them or tilt your exposure, just like in stocks, to a dynamic exposure that's actually value added. And you guys have been, to my knowledge, one of the first that started to roll out some of these dynamically hedged currency funds. So instead of just being non-hedged or hedged, you're actually adjusting the currency exposure. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the, that, that idea there. Awesome. No, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. So, the one thing I tell people is
1: that the only thing they shouldn't be doing is being unhedged all the time. So, I could fully advocate a position that as a U.S. investor, you should be strategically hedged all the time to just get the lower volatility profile of that EFA universe. Um, but, you know, the question is, should you be unhedged all the time? And that's where I say you shouldn't. So the question is, can you, know, can you actually figure out when it's beneficial to add the currency exposure, take it down, um, or say it differently when I should hedge and, or take the hedge ratio down? And, you know, there is factors. Like you're saying, you know, there's a lot of factor investing in equities where you look at value, you look at momentum, and value momentum have worked in currencies. You probably read the paper Value and Momentum Everywhere from, from Cliff Asmith and he talks about it. In stocks and bonds and in commodities and in, in currencies. And when we developed a dynamic hedging index family uh, in conjunction with a, a currency manager from London, uh, we developed these indexes together and value and momentum were two of our three signals. Uh, the, the one signal we added on top of value and momentum that we actually found to work better than each of value and momentum was interest rate differentials. And that's a simple, you know, when you're getting paid to hedge like you are today for the euro, you hedge it. But when it Costs you to hedge like the Australian dollar, you don't hedge it. And so the, the 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 factor works fairly simply. It's a third based on interest rates, binary on or off, fully hedged. Momentum on or off. It, you know it's it's either fully hedged or not, depending on the trend. And we're looking at a short term signal like the late, latest 10 days versus a long term signal the 240 days. And when its currency is weakening, you want to be hedged. And when it's strengthening, you don't and then and then the value of pPP discount um, you know that 's a very long term signal it takes a you know it 's not like a, a short term signal and you ha- we find you have to become very cheap versus your your fair value your pPP type number before you would take the hedge ratio to zero on that and that's one where we do have a half signal on that uh, so what 's interesting today you know for the dollar there's nobody so cheap that our value ratio would suggest a zero hedge, so basically everybody is within our band of of you know, reasonably, some of them are cheap. Yeah, the euro is a little cheap, but it's not so cheap that we take the hedge ratio to zero on that. the The cost to hedge is mostly in your favor. You're mostly getting paid, besides for something like the Australian dollar, uh, the New Zealand dollar. Um, so most of them are hedged on the interest rate signal, um, and then momentum. It's sort of a mixed bag. You know, this year you've been hedged on the pound, and that's been very, very effective. It protects protected from the Brexit using this dynamic signal. It's been half hedged on euro and yen this year. So, you know, you could say you somewhat got part of the benefit from the yen appreciation, but uh, the interest rates have obviously suggested saying hedged there. So momentum signal helped you there, but,
0: but uh, we, um, and so the nice thing about those signals too, is, is just the same as combining say value and momentum in equities is, is they work, um, holistically. So the purchasing power parity, which you're talking about, which a lot of investors, um, a good example of this is the Economist looked at the Big Mac index. So how much does it cost to make a Big Mac and McDonald's all around the world? And it's a good way of comparing currencies. So, I mean, I remember I was tweeting um, years ago when I went to Australia, was was it a little surf shack in Byron Bay and was having a hamburger in Beer, and remember I was like, "Holy cow, this is incredibly expensive, and um, that's kind of like a generic man's version of the purchasing power parity. So the value, like you mentioned, plays out over very long periods. but combining value with say momentum or trend, which works exceedingly well in currencies because typically these geopolitical forces often can take you know many, many years to play out, and the last one that you mentioned. The interest rate differential, which most people refer to as carry, um, is one of the best ones. However, carry traditionally is one of the worst diversifiers to a traditional portfolio. So, a lot of the carry type of indexes, if you just sorted markets by carry, um, you know, it got crushed in 2008 because typically a lot of the high-yielding countries uh, tend to be more, in, in today's world, more of the risky type of currencies that are risky countries that would be seen as sort of a risk-on type of portfolio. And the funny thing is once you combine them, you end up with much more of a holistic scenario. I remember doing a post in the early days of the blog where we looked at just carry and carry worked great, but the same sort of thing you're talking about is if you looked at the evaluation of the carry basket, kind of what a lot of people are talking about right now with factor investing, we said carry works best when the basket is really cheap that you're buying and expensive that you're selling, and it works terribly, you know, vice versa. That may be a good time to segue into thinking about some other topics. Anything else you want to talk about on currencies while we're here?
1: No, I think this was a great conversation. Thanks for bringing it up. I mean, I do think that we're trying to challenge people, think more from, you know, this uncompensated risk perspective um, for your strategic options. But then I think this dynamic family is in some ways the future to try to help add value over on top of that.
0: I love it. I, I really do love it. So check it out, guys, Wisdom Tree's website. And so we're thinking about factors as well. You guys have been an early pioneer, certainly with factor-based funds, moving away from market cap weighting. Um, what would you like to touch on first there? I mean, you've, I know you guys have written some on low vol, you've written on factors uh, internationally. Is there, is there a alleyway you want to start down first? Yeah, this is, a, this is such a broad conversation.
1: So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, just one for people not as familiar, I mean, we we did pass our 10-year anniversary around our first 20 strategies. Uh, so we launched a dividend-weighted family back in 2006. Uh, now, dividend-weighting, when you look back, you know, when we first launched in '06, everything was maybe 300 ETFs and 300 billion in, in assets. And today, you know, what, it's 5, 6 times as many ETFs with closer to $2 trillion. the The original concept was market cap weighting. It's non-rebalancing. You could say in some ways it's a momentum strategy which just rides prices up and down and doesn't try to, to add or subtract weight based on any sense of value. That was our first concept was rebalancing back to these relative valuations. We have a dividend family with 10 years history, we did an earnings family a year later um, or, or maybe nine months later that, that tries it back to earnings streams. Uh, really for the U.S., although we've done some countries like India and Korea that are lower dividend countries. Um, And so I think we we start off with this broad dividend beta, as you would call it. There's a lot of active dividend strategies I try to pick subsets of the dividend universe, but you could say our broad index is really, you know, the the dividend benchmark by owning the broadest cross-section of dividend stocks. And then you know, we've recently gone in towards quality. I think that is a a factor looking at, you know, the academics. Maybe three years ago, we launched a, a quality family that I think is is interesting. I think that's in the US where the, where the valuations are the cheapest is in, in the quality side of the market. But the the middle of all that is actually the place where I think the valuations are, are the most expensive. And you know when you look at what there's some interesting lines of thought coming out in terms of what are the embedded you know biases of these strategies and there's an interesting paper, called the embedded interest rate exposure within minimal volatility. And it, it, it sorts these low volatility portfolios into, into the deciles from Fama French. It does some regressions. I'm saying, what is your interest rate factor exposure in these? Um, and I think, you know, you find the lowest volatility stocks tend to have called a, a 30% allocation to bonds, let's say. And, you know, the, the high-volatility death are more like being short bonds. And I had done a piece uh, on, on our blog saying the other side of low volatility was Japan, um, is saying that, you know, what has actually, you know, for the first six, seven months of the year Japan had been underperforming as eight, interest rates were going down. Low volatility utilities were outperforming in the first six months of the year. It's the exact opposite side. Then interest rates bottomed July 8th and everything reversed. So utilities have been underperforming. minimum vol- has been underperforming. Japan has been way outperforming. So you've got to think about what's your embedded factor exposures within these factors. And so interest rate bets concentrating on, you know, within minimal volatility, you could say if you're a conservative investor loading up on minimum vault, you're actually concentrating your risk in in bonds even more than you might have been, you know, if you thought you were being conservative and already had a 75% allocation to bonds, now you're actually increasing it even more.
0: You guys actually talked a little bit about that in, and we'll link to a lot of these papers in the show notes, you talked a little bit about that in intended or unintended exposures. I think the piece was utilities versus financials, a rising rate story. Yeah, where you talk about utilities over the course of this year through maybe June or July, and whether or not people intended to do it through certain factor exposures, et cetera, You know, are we all in this sort of global rate trade? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that piece or that line of thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean it was basically just looking at utilities through July eighth and then utilities since July eighth and then look at what other sectors had, you know, had done and July eighth was a day of a strong employment report, so that's when rates basically bottomed and started heading back heading back up. And you definitely saw financials were outperforming as the rates were increasing and utilities started underperforming there. So I think it's it's part of that same that same thing of whether it's utilities or at the low ball. I mean, I think that is—it's it, definitely tied to interest rates, and so I think that when when I talk about in for for us, I think you know one of our our. You know, better positions I see is actually our small cap earnings strategy. That's been one lower P ratio stocks. It's more tied to these cyclical sectors. It did well during the 2013 rising rate environment. It did well since July 8th. Um, so if, if I'm looking at a U.S. strategy, that's probably, you know, my least sensitive to interest rates is, is small cap earnings stocks. You know, if I'm saying what is actually my most negatively correlated to bonds, it's actually financials uh, and Japanese financials in particular, which have, you know, were down 40% through July 8th and now up, say, 20, 25% since July 8th. And so that's actually one of the sectors that has, has really been benefiting from rising rates.
0: You know, and so I think the factor space in the U.S., it's really interesting. It's pretty well developed for equities, talking about all the different factors, and it's good to see people getting a large amount of interest there, one of the areas that people don't talk as much about factor exposure, we wrote a paper on it this past year or two, um, that you guys talk a lot about as well, is is talking about factor exposure in the bond space. Mm. And um, maybe talk a little bit about y'all's approach to moving away from the market cap weighting in bonds, because I think a lot of people don't really understand how bond indexes are weighted. And then once they hear about it, it's it's kind of a revelation. They say, oh, geez, why would I wait it that way? You you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. And even within the ETF industry, I mean, I still think bonds have been, you know, really one of the the holdouts that I look at, you know, the flows towards ETFs and mutual funds, I'd say the last 10 years, you know, there's something like a trillion dollars into equity ETFs. And almost when you when you take out a certain set of investors like certain retirement accounts and, and other you know, Vanguard-oriented passive mutual funds, the active funds have sort of lost a trillion dollars worth of inequities uh, over a certain 10-year period I was looking at. But in bond world, the active funds have still you know, kept a, a foothold. And, and you say you know, when people say, do I want to give the most weight, to the countries or the companies with the most debt that's outstanding, you say, well, if they're going to try to pay back their debt, do you really want to give the way to the countries with the most debt? So, in an international bond index, you give the most weight to Japan, which has the most debt um, and has low yields. And so, is that really the proposition you want? That's why people say, yeah, for I want to use an active manager. Um, but I think there is going to be an increasing amount of ways to try to allocate towards these type of strategies without having to use an active manager to make those decisions. Um, And so there's a few different strategies we launched. One is just essentially, you know, for the aggregate, the U.S. aggregate, which is, you know, one of the biggest allocations people tend to do in the indexing world. You know, the amount of treasuries has been growing just because the treasury keeps issuing more debt. And so its role within the Barclays Ag keeps growing. It's up to approximately 40%, I want to say, up from, you know, 25% a few, maybe 20 years ago. And so, um, instead of that, and those those treasuries keep getting a lower and lower yield. So you know, the question is, can you sort of reweight the aggregate um, in a way like we reweight equity markets to try to enhance the yield? Uh, and so we partnered with Barclays to create this yield-enhanced AG index that shifts the duration. It doesn't try to try to, to keep the duration constrained within a year. tries to limit tracking error. Uh, to 35 basis points a month, but also try to optimize that yield and get a, get a higher yield. So you end up getting about 60, 70 basis points higher yield in your core, you know, sort of investment grade fixed income with minimum duration pickup. Uh, and that strategy has done very, very well over the year it's been live, uh, doing well versus the active funds, doing well versus the, the passive benchmark. So I think that's sort of one sort of optimized type of way where you put constraints, guardrails on what's your tilt that you're going to make, but just sort of reweighting the ag towards yield is one nice way. Uh, and secondly, we launched a, a fundamental fixed income family that's actually trying to do credit analysis in a way where you're looking at factors, uh, so in the high-yield bond market, one of the things we found is if you can just look at the, the fundamentals and the, the earnings statements, the cash flows, and find bonds that don't have negative free cash flows, those bonds tended to outperform the bonds with positive free cash flows. I mean, The, the, ne- the, the negative ones underperformed the, the, the bonds bonds with positive free cash flows and that's sort of a simple quality factor within the high yield bond market that we do think can sort of in- increase the the return profile. Definitely you sort of get a lower risk profile there. Uh, and then we try to reweight those bonds back towards income because if you just screened out those bonds with negative free cash flow, you're gonna obviously drop your yield, you know, a decent amount. But so we try to reweight back towards income once we screened out those, you know uh, negative free cash flow bonds, and so that's sort of another interesting approach. We launched a, a few short term, uh, longer term high yield bonds, as, w- as well as sort of investment grade, applying a similar methodology, applying a quality factor but reweighting towards income. So I think there is going to be more quant strategies within fixed income that that are going to be able to to do these type of strategies.
0: And so one one more area that I think is really interesting that we're big fans of, of what y'all do is. A little bit in the liquid alt space, and you know, historically, there's been a lot of very meager choices in liquid alt and ETFs. I think I think it's it's inning one, honestly, and I I think it's getting better and better. A good example is I think y'all do a little more self-indexing or bringing some of the uh, partnerships in-house, and you know, an area that is very near and dear to us, of course, is trend following, and you all have probably my favorite uh, sort of strategy or index there in the ETF space, which is the managed futures. And that is an area that um, you guys have a little bit different twist on that methodology than um, some do. Or do, you, do, you, uh, do you want to chat a little bit about the uh, managed futures kind of concept and yep. y'all's, y'all's take on it?
1: So, it's interesting, we did have a somewhat of a strategy change this year, um, so, you know, we were, at, when we launched, uh, and, and WDTI is, is the ETF here, you know, we launched that ETF and we had a partnership there with Alpha Financial Technologies and we were using the DTI indicator, it had, you know, a live track record on the index side, you know, before we had launched it, uh, where it was just going long or short, a basket of commodities, currencies and interest rates. Um, and you know it, it had done fairly nicely in its live inception. We launched it, I want to say, early 2010. I'm forgetting the exact launch date. Um, but you know it, it it had been a little bit. You know the category had not done well since we launched it. Uh, our strategy did. Um, you know just sort of a fair, I'd say, or maybe disappointing. And. You know, so we looked at some capabilities we were developing internally. We'd hired – my team's been build, building out. We've hired some PhDs on our team. And I started looking at, you know, the data and saying, can we try to add some enhancements to the methodology that might might help it perform in the future? And we looked at what are the signals – you know, so in a, in, a, in a trend system, you know, you could say, you know, your obviously your universe that you're selecting from is one of the variables that you can can add value in. And then your signal, when, when you're going long or short, and, and how much you will – you know, add into those positions. And so we looked at where can we try to improve, and we were looking at, um, with the, the, the old DTI, it was just looking at the, the seven-month weighted exponential moving average on, on the prices to determine your long short signal. We have enhanced it to look at three different time periods, a short-term, three months, medium-term, six-month, and 12-month signal, so that's sort of having multiple decision points on, on, you know, when you're going long or short. Then we've sort of scaled down position sizes. When those three signals don't agree, you don't take a full position in in that commodity currency or interest rate. So that's one way where I think we're sort of managing volatility a little bit. But second, we found if you look at the long-term data on these commodities, currencies, and rates, when there's very high volatility in that commodity, it tends so trend following doesn't work as well. So one of the things we've done is also screened out some of the KMI's that have the highest volatility from our universe, and we think that potentially can improve some of the results going forward. And, to, and so that's essentially some of the things that we've done is, is try to enhance the, the screening with multiple time periods, try to scale down the position size when the signals don't agree, and then remove from our universe some of the KMI's with the highest volatility.
0: Yeah, yeah, y'all do some uh, pretty pretty interesting work and a lot of liquid alts. I'm not. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole too much today. But but listeners, um, check out some of the liquid alts on the on the Wisdom Tree blog and website. Um, let, let's shift a little bit. To we're bouncing all around, and that's listeners are familiar with that, so they don't mind. It's standard. Um, y'all put out a great piece, maybe one of my favorites uh, over the past year called Dividends, Buybacks, and the Prospect of Future Returns. Mm. You know, you and I have have probably wrapped more about this topic in the the many years than anything else. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about that piece? Because this is a nice long piece. Again, we'll post it to the show notes uh, you did with Tripp and Josh. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about that piece? Yeah, and this is
1: something that we've been trying to provide. You know, there's really, when people talk about buybacks, um, they, they, they have this reputation as, you know, the press loves to hate on buybacks. Um, and, you know, I think it is actually one of the key ways firms are starting and have, have increasingly used to return cash to shareholders. And, you know, for something like the S&P 500 today, my calculations show or our calculators show about a two percent dividend yield with a two percent net buyback. And so, you know, a lot of people uh, have said, well the S P five hundred looks expensive because if you look at the you know the data from Bob Schiller, the average yield used to be say four point four percent. You know, the average dividend yield, now we have a dividend yield of 2%. We've had a long-term dividend growth on the market, you know, in nominal terms of call it 5%, Um, let's say since 1957 when the S&P 500 was started. And so people say, well, 2% dividend yield, 5% dividend growth two plus five is seven. The market's expensive. We need to lose three or four percent on valuations compressing back to their average. So we're going to get a three or four percent nominal return. And I say, you know, that five percent dividend growth is likely not to be five percent. It's more likely to be seven percent because these two percent buybacks are actually locking in future growth. If their cash flows are the exact same, you now have went from 100 shares outstanding to 98 shares outstanding, your future dividend growth is likely to be higher in the future. So, you know, one of the things we, you know, try to take strides of is trying to show net buybacks across every index we have on a daily basis. So on our website, you can see the net buyback yields, the gross buyback yields every day. And, you know, I don't think any other index provider has that information or actually publishes that information. It's very tough to find. Uh, Now, it's really a U.S. phenomenon. So if I looked across our U.S. indexes, on our earnings family, you could get 3% buyback yields. Our quality dividend growth that that I talked about a little bit, 3.5% net buyback yields. The broad dividend X, which does more dividends than buybacks, maybe their buyback yields are one5 with a 3% yield. But basically, you get 4.5% to 5.5%, 6% buyback yields, depending on the strategy. Those. Those are actually good indicators of your real after inflation return. You don't need any growth on top of that. If you get a combined dividend buyback yield of 6%, that's a pretty good indicator of your long-term real returns, which is, you know, not a bad place to be today given the overall, overall market. So I think it's, it's something we're trying to provide good data on and I think it's,
0: it is something that's going to lead to better dividend growth in the market or yeah. better dividend yeah. entering. I don't think a lot of people understand that is that, you know, and and certainly reporters, I often pull my hair out when I'm reading some of these articles on buybacks because you know what what mostly the buybacks do is they simply shift the equation. So on the dividend yield, for example, you you mentioned this again, historically four or five down to two, but because the route of cash flow distribution has changed since the eighties, that means the equation for the earnings growth, it shows up somewhere else. You know, so instead of distributing the, the cash through dividends, they distribute the cash through net buybacks. And by net buybacks, it changes the, the growth of the dividends. And that simple takeaway for a lot of people is sort of an aha moment. And I think it's a, a lot of people really don't understand that well for the broad market. Now, the interesting part, of course, is that once you start to divvy up the stocks or sectors like y'all do, and the information is notoriously hard to come by. I mean, you can, you can get it for stocks. Even then, on only a few places, I mean, of course, on Bloomberg, we use white charts as well uh, for individual stocks, but for, for sectors and industries, or sorry, sectors and broad country indexes, incredibly hard to get. Yeah. And I'm looking through y'all's paper, and this is dated from six months ago, but it's, it's really useful because, like you said, there are some indexes that have a 4% net buyback yield, and there's some that are negative. You know, there's some where these indexes are, you're getting diluted. And like any strategy, like value or carry we talked about, we often say it's just as important not just to be buying the stocks or the the investments that are cheap or that are buying back their stock, but it's also equally as important to be avoiding the expensive ones or the ones that are diluting you. And so you guys have some on this list that are, you know, 2% per year. And those are just as detrimental to a market cap portfolio as the good side of finding the good stuff. Let's talk about what those indexes are. So what it is, it's
1: the small cap stock. And so this is actually really – I thought this was one of the more interesting pieces of that paper was if you look at – and so you hear a lot about the Fama French small cap value versus small cap growth. Small cap value is one of the best performing asset classes across time. And you say, why is that? When you start looking at the buyback data – uh, what's interesting is is it actually does show that firms do respond to incentives. That the the most expensive companies issue the most shares. Um, they're in growth mode. They're trying to take advantage of their stocks being expensive, and they issue shares. The cheaper stocks actually do more buybacks, or they issue less shares. And so, if you looked at just the Russell 2000 universe, and you sorted it by PE ratio, and you found you looked in you know the the lowest PE stocks in the Russell 2000 may do some buybacks. They're certainly issuing less shares, but the most expensive stocks, and they're also 2,000, will issue consistently 5% shares a year. And so, you know, that's a hurdle. That's how much these companies just have to grow earnings just to break even. So you say, why is small-cap value being small-cap growth? They don't have this 5% share drag that the the growth companies have.
0: Uh, And I think that we we did a piece – on the blog I can't remember the name of it, but we'll link to it in the show notes in the last year or two where we ranked every company in the I believe is the top two thousand market cap and combined you know the the dividend yield and buybacks so of shareholder yield and on the left side of the chart about eighty percent had a positive I, I believe uh, shareholder yield but twenty percent had essentially a negative one so whether they had zero dividends and negative share issuance. Or, and this is happens more often than people would expect, a company that has a positive dividend yield, but the, the amount of shares they're issuing swamps that dividend yield. We call those kind of the capital destroyers. And it's kind of an area that you, would, you just want to run away from. And, and there's a couple of interesting points you touched on that I want to come back to. One is that it's interesting to me that you see the U.S is kind of in the forefront of this buyback trend, mm-hmm. and the rest of the world is still very dividend-centric. Have you seen in your travels or studies any countries in particular that are starting to embrace uh, the, the buyback sort of methodology, or do you see it as something that still, for the most part, is, is largely a U.S. phenomenon?
1: You, so, I mean, I, I mentioned we, we we're calculating this across 80 indexes today. Um, so I, I know it across all of our uh, all of our indexes. The U.S., um, if I look at the broad U.S. dividend index that we have, um, you know, you get a 3% dividend yield, a 1.8% net buyback yield today on, on our website. If I look at that for the EFA market, so the broad international developed world, uh, here the buy, the dividend yields are a, a percent higher. So you get a 4% dividend yield but only a 26 eight basis point buyback yield, right? So, you know, if you just looked at dividend, you'd say, well, international markets, higher dividend yields. But when you look at the total, so that that 3% plus 1.8, you actually get a slightly higher combined dividend plus buyback yield for the U.S., dividend pairs compared to EFA's dividend pairs, which is interesting. Now, across the other countries, though, so if I looked at Europe or if I looked at you know the other regions, the only country that I really see as a standout and sort of interesting and something with intrigue has become you know, more known for is Japan is actually starting to increase its buybacks as part of, you know, they're, they're focusing on, from prime minister Abe, they're talking about trying to target a return on equity. You know, they're trying to get companies to have better, better stewardship of, of capital, and they actually are increasing buybacks. Um, One of the higher buyback yields, closer to a percent on the broad Japan markets, Japanese financials are doing the most, whereas U.S. companies might have this reputation of, my stock's going down, I'm going to stop my buybacks. The Japanese financials were down 40%, and they have 2% buyback yield. So they're actually doing more buybacks, but it's really not a broad international trend. It's really a U.S. phenomenon.
0: You know, we we we've noticed the same thing, and so I I was kind of uh, baiting you on that one. And I know as much time as you spend in Japan, we we uh we've noticed the same thing. in foreign developed, that, Japan has increasing amounts of uh, shareholder friendly companies, which hasn't really been the case over the past couple of decades. But certainly the weights, if you do a shareholder yield methodology, are are very high tilted towards uh, Japan in particular, yep. internationally. All right, so we're probably Starting to get closer to the end of the podcast in the beginning, um, if you had to take your you know, work hat off and say, what do you see as the main opportunities over the next five to ten years or even shorter if you wanted to and, and kind of how you would either construct your own portfolio or advise, uh, not advise, but, but talk to individual investors, are there any kind of 10,000 foot takeaways as far as what you see as big opportunities, whether it be secular or cyclical? Short-term, long-term, anything in between that uh, you see kind of going forward? No, I mean, I think you talked a lot of, a lot about good things on,
1: on in, in terms of your, your philosophies. You want to go, you know, you look at the active managers. I loved your blog that talked about, you know, look at the asset allocation funds and how many people are actually invested in the active world in their own funds. And so finding people who have conviction in what they do, eat their own cooking. So I loved how you said how you're using your own – types of, of models for, for running your own personal money. And I'm the same way where I, I develop all of our, you know, our a lot of our equity solutions and I eat my own cooking and have principally just used uh, our, our ETFs. Um And, you know, so I, I, I definitely believe in that. I mean, I think in terms of, of where the opportunities are around the world, uh, you know, a lot of people say, you know, the U.S. market is expensive and i'd say yes on an absolute basis it's it's not a cheap market relative to your opportunity set though and when you think about you know and and this is a important important part of the thing you can't just say you know it's not it's, it's all, everything is relative to bonds in a way because bonds are When you think about finances it's assets are the present value of their future cash flows and to get the present value you need a bond rate you need the the risk-free cost of capital and so if you look at the 10-year tips in the u.s your inflation protected bond yields today are zero and so if you're going to hold a 10-year bond the 10-year tips get okay, you zero real return just protection from inflation And, and, you know, if you're not going to look at prices on a daily basis, if you'd say I had to buy a broad basket of U.S. stocks, however you want to construct it, whether it's just the market beta, whether it's something, you know, in a a factor based world like either one of our, our firms does, I, I think you'll do better than the 10-year TIPS bond. Um, that's, I think, a, a a a suggestion I would make. Um, now, if I had to say, if I'm constrained to just the U.S., I would say people should not just constrain themselves to the U.S. I think it's a global world. Valuations around the world are cheaper than the U.S. If you look at the developed world compared to the U.S., it's one of the the worst times for, say, the EFA markets in the last 10 years compared to the U.S. It's maybe one of the 90th percentile worst times for EFA markets versus the U.S. So. I do say, you know, to the extent you can, I I would actually be positioning overseas compared to the US, whether it's developed, whether it's emerging markets. And I'd say, you know, and I, and we started the conversation with currencies, I I do say still I don't want to bet on the currencies. I'd say either you know fully hedged, or dynamically hedged or, or what not there. But I I do say people are over invested in the US. I'd say people are, are under invested overseas.
0: Well, we we Agree with you on a, a lot of those statements, you know, in particular, we always say mean reversion, one of the most powerful forces in investing and looking at all the stuff that's, that's just been getting um, skewered over the since the global financial crisis and emerging markets and commodities still, for the most part, having a really hard time rebounding. You and I were joking a little bit about the bombed out markets that have been down three, four, five years in a row and in both emerging and commodities been down three in a row. Some tiny sectors have been down five. We, we chatted about coal. And then I tweeted about this today, and then a, a, a Twitter follower it brought up the fact that we're getting ready to, if we finish the year now where we are, uranium stocks are going to enter six down years in a row uh, if we finish where we are now. So we'll, uh, we'll reconvene at the end of December and see if uranium is still, uh, still, still getting bounded. Um, All right. So uh, we always ask our guests uh, for one one piece of interesting, beautiful, useful, magical idea that's something somebody may not have heard of. Uh, You have something for us today?
1: Um, you know, this is. I, I thought you might ask this question. Uh, and I think, I'd, and a lot of your your, your followers or, or your your questions have, have gone towards the apps on the phones. And so I started looking through my apps and saying, all right, so which one of these things might other people not have used before? Um, one of them is is interesting. We both do a lot of travel. Um, I think one of them is something – it was actually my wife had this idea of of an app, and and then started looking around, and actually they had developed it already. Of course, you always think you have the greatest ideas until – and then you look, and and people have it. But, you know, you go to these restaurants, and, you know, a lot lot of them have long wait times, and you say they should really just have an app that you can book ahead of time. Um, And so then you you don't have to – get there and, and get in line for these long waits. And in my, in my area, there's a lot of these restaurants are already using this app, and I'm hoping more and more restaurants join it so that you can put yourself in line don't have to wait in these long waits. But the, the app is called No Wait, and, you know, you can, you can get in line, and then they keep track of your place in line. You can show up after, you know, if you had an hour wait normally and some of these things. So I think that No Wait app is actually is an interesting one that, I, that we've been using a lot.
0: There's there's two others sort of in that vein that I use. One is called, I think, Reserve. And if you're not in one of the major cities in the U.S., it's probably not going to be that useful. But it's kind of like a Uber of uh, restaurant apps where it gets you get a reservation and you actually just have a credit card on file. You don't pay. They just bring you the building in and that's that. Um, and there's another kind of hilarious one that we <laughs> I've seen. And you see this in kind of the bullish cycles, you know, where in your seven, eight bull market. And so you start to see a little silliness where I remember this in the late nineties, all these apps that are at that point it was websites, but you could sign up and get $30 for doing nothing other than signing up, et cetera. There's one called Hooch, which just got funded for a million and a half that for $9 a month, it allows you to go to any number of bars in your city and get one free drink a day. And so you basically break even if you just have one drink and if you're an alcoholic, this is an app for you, <laughs> but, but it's, it's funny to me how, how in the world possibly this app could make money. But not only that, they have a guest feature where you don't even have to sign up, but you just get one free drink a month anyway. And so <laughs> I've been using it the last few months as we find any restaurants or bars to go to in LA that would be going to anyway, been using the Hooch app, which is right. kind of funny. Um, all right. So the one that I have again is also an app. And for those who are like going to concerts, who like going to sporting events, this is particularly interesting right now uh, in LA. We have got the Dodgers Cubs game tonight in LCS. It's called SeatGeek, and it aggregates all the other sporting event tickets. So you know, instead of having to go to StubHub and then Craigslist and all these other places. This one aggregates all the values so you can very quickly find in either a section or sorted by best deal. And it's been incredibly helpful on being able to find a ticket for, for a, a good event or venue. Anyway, Tiki, check it out. Jeremy, um, before I let you go, any, under uh, travels right now, any particular, what, what do you got on the, the docket for the rest of the year? Are you going to be back home in New York? I know both of us are going to be at the, uh, Josh and Barry's evidence-based investing conference. I think it's November 15th. Uh, you got any other travel or are you going to mostly be, uh, be home for the rest of the year? Um, a lot of travel still. November is certainly October, November
1: an interesting one. We're going, I'm going back to Australia, New Zealand area, my first time to New Zealand, but, uh, We'll be making a, a trip to to Australia ahead of that, and then we'll then I come back and uh, I'm there that next week uh, with you in, in New York, and then then go home to, to Florida where I grew up for Thanksgiving and then December at least quiet for now, but that that always picks up. That'll change quickly. Well, cool
0: L- listeners, if you're in New York, come out to this conference. We'll uh, we'll buy you a beer at the happy hour on I'm or Barry and Josh, uh, whoever. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. If in, listeners want to find more info, follow your research, your writing, your, your Twittering, uh, where, where's the best place to find uh, what you're up to? So WisdomTree.com uh, is our blog. Um, that we
1: do, we do writing every day there. That's probably the best place. WisdomTree EPS is, is where there's
0: a, they, they, they tweet out a lot of our, our thoughts on, on, on that as well. And you don't tweet that much, but we can find you on Twitter. I think Jeremy D. Schwartz, is that right? Yeah, it's, it's tough from, from work reasons to do that personally. But uh, Well, I was a little worried because the last tweet I saw from you, I think you were in Medellin. Yeah, <laughs> I was it?
1: flying. So I was, that was the first debate. I was trying to watch the debate from, from. I was flying in just as the first debate was starting. And I, I listened to it on SiriusXM, actually.
0: Oh, that's funny. You know, something that I learned, and this, is, this may be useful to listeners as well, is that I was trying to watch the Denver Bronco game from Japan, the Super Bowl last year, and was in a small village in Japan and, and was kind of panicking because I was either going to take a a bus back to Tokyo to watch it or try to figure out a way to watch in this village. And was in this small inn, and they had TV, but I found out that it was going to be... They would have the game, but it would be completely in Japanese, and I... Would love to have heard the the broadcast. And CBS wouldn't stream it internationally. And so you were blocked. But then I, I mean, I'm some ways very uh, tech savvy, in other ways, just a complete moron. And so one of the guys I was with is a a big tech guy. He says, Oh, no, you just need to sign up for a VPN, yada, yada. What's a VPN? But it basically allows your computer to say that it's in somewhere else and you get to choose the somewhere else. So I said, Hey, I'm located in San Francisco. Sure enough, got the most beautiful glitch free Super Bowl um on my computer. It looked like you're watching on an HD TV in uh, in a tiny village in Japan and only for about one second in the third quarter did it even glitch once. So that's another great idea for for listeners. If you're traveling abroad, get a VPN service that uh that'll let you say you're you're anywhere in the world. It's getting easier to Jeremy. get connected to these things from anywhere you want. Yeah, it's it's a amazing time to be alive. All right. Jeremy, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, We always welcome feedback and questions for the show at feedback at the MebFaberShow.com. As a reminder, you can always find show notes, other episodes at MebFaber.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Overcast, any of the other podcast players. And if you're enjoying it, hating it, whatever, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.